Welcome to the Insurgents Podcast with Frank Viola. And he's brought a friend. This is the podcast that supplements Frank's groundbreaking book, Insurgents, Reclaiming the Gospel of the Kingdom, which is shaking up the Christian world. You can find out details about the book at insurgents.org. Sit back, open all four ears, physical and spiritual, and join the insurgents. Here's Frank. Welcome to another edition of the Insurgents Podcast. Frankie V here, and I have Nikki V with me. And we're going to continue to answer your questions. Are you ready to roll? Sure am. Let's, let's dive in. Let's do it. Here we go. Frank, I've noticed that whenever you mention another author on your podcast or sometimes in one of your books or blogs, some of my friends will go read the recommended book and then they'll start checking out the author's other stuff, which sometimes contradicts what you teach and they end up being confused. I applaud you for recommending the works of other people, but do you see a danger in this and have you seen the same problem? And I guess I'll get vulnerable here not only have i seen the problem but i'm acutely aware of it and it has troubled me i don't really have an answer for it except to say that i either have a choice and that is don't recommend anybody else's work because someone who's listening may go ahead and dig up their podcasts or start reading all their other books or whatever content they've produced and some of it may contradict what i teach and not want to take that risk and lead someone into confusion or at least be instrumental in doing that or out of good conscience and to show a debt to people who have helped me in certain areas recommend their work and leave the results to the lord and i've chosen to do the latter to just not worry about that at all and if somebody's going to go and based on a recommended book and then start digging up the other author's work and other places and if some of it contradicts what i say and Here's my feeling, Nick. If they can be persuaded to go in a different direction mm-hmm. and say the message I have and the gospel that I preach, then my feeling is that's what they should do. You know, right. It's not my responsibility to try to persuade people to stay in line with everything that I'm teaching. I mean, I'm still learning as well, but there are things that I'm very clear about, I believe, and I'm certain about in my own heart and mind. But if someone can be persuaded to go in a different direction, that's not my responsibility. You know what I mean? And they're the Lord's sheep. They're not mine, right? So, Well, that's it. I mean, you just nailed it right there. Who are we making disciples for? Yeah, exactly. No. Um, If it's for ourselves, then, yeah, we'll stop recommending other people and all the tangential things that flow from somebody reading somebody else that is recommended. But um, if they're the Lord's, then mm-hmm. that's all his business. It's all his There's business. a lot of freedom in, in living that way. There is, absolutely, absolutely. You never like it when someone, you know, in your view is confused or they've gone down a direction that's devolved instead of evolved. But nevertheless, you know, that's mm-hmm. that's God's business. Our business is just to plant the seed, and the growth is in the Holy Spirit's hands. You know. Okay, Frank, here's the next question. How do we guard our first love for Jesus, staying first, while pursuing kingdom life? I'm going to say that again. How do we guard our first love for Jesus, staying first, while pursuing kingdom life? I'm going to rephrase the question. How do we guard our love for our wives, 
while pursuing marriage life. Mm. That's clever. That's exactly the question that's being asked here. You can't separate your love for your wife or your husband from married life. You can't separate your love for Jesus from kingdom life. It's one in the same, folks. I'm, I'm going to give you a gold sticker for that one. The suction <clears throat> in this room is so strong <laughs> that the walls are about to cave in. Yeah, I, I, think, I think that's good. The, the problem with the question is that it assumes that those are in competition with each other. Exactly. And they're not. And it also assumes that Jesus is separate from the kingdom of God. Right. But I would say this. If you're pursuing a quote-unquote kingdom life, and it is somehow evaporating or sucking away your first love for Jesus, I would say that that is not a kingdom existence that you are pursuing. It's something else. Yes, you're not pursuing the kingdom, you're pursuing something else. Kingdom is not in competition with Jesus, nor our affection Mm. for him. They are inextricably intertwined together. Absolutely. Even one in the same. Even one in the same. He embodies the kingdom. Seek first the kingdom and his righteousness. Seek first me, the king, for I embody the kingdom. The kingdom is Christ. The kingdom is the community of of the king, but you can't separate mm-hmm. the two. You can't separate the head from the body. Right. Yeah, the kingdom is a person, not a location. Well, it is, but it's more, it's a person. Yeah. I think that does it for that one. I'll read the next one. What is your take on 1 Corinthians 4.20, where the kingdom of God is not a matter of talk, but of power? All right, this is from the New American Standard. Now, some have become arrogant as though I were not coming to you, but I will come to you soon if the Lord wills, and I shall find out not the words of those who are arrogant, but their power. For the kingdom of God does not consist in words, but in power. Mm. And the NIV puts verse 20 thusly, for the kingdom of God is not a matter of talk, but of power. What say you, Nikki V? Well, I mean, this this is the part where Paul is <laughs> responding to the fact that his apostleship has been called into question, that his motives have been called into question. Kind of referencing back to one of our earlier podcasts about context being important, this would certainly fit that category. Yeah. Because um, I think when we see the word power, we automatically just make this leap to signs and wonders right um so we think paul's going to come in here and do a whamma jamma to prove <laughs> everybody that he's god's whamma jamma but i think the important thing to keep in mind here in the early chapters of corinthians is what paul's addressing is the fracturing of the body of christ in mm-hmm. corinth and even worse the fracturing is centering around the workers Mm-hmm. Uh, those who are there to actually serve them and um, nourish them in Christ so that they can grow up into maturity and the exact opposite is happening. They're latching on to someone mm-hmm. who is um, evidently pretty gifted in oratory, which, I mean, these are the Greeks. These are my people right here. Oratory carries a lot of weight in this culture. And it did in the first century. These yes. were the 
the sports heroes yeah. and the celebrities, yeah, the yeah, guys these, who these could the, right. use rhetoric to wow you, you know? Yeah, so somebody who is some type of a minister is also hitting Grand Slam home runs here with, with their messages and is, um, is doing it to the point where there is a fracturing going on and people are saying, as we know, I am of Paul, I am of Apollos, I am of Peter, and mm-hmm. there's, there's this completely unnecessary, incredibly damaging fracture coming on. So Paul says, I'm coming, and when I come, it's not going to be with words. <laughs> I'm going to find out what kind of power they have. And um, for the kingdom of God does not consist in words, but in power. So what what does the power look like in this instance? So I'm assuming that some of what Paul's referencing here is we're going to see some of that power should we catch a glimpse of Paul's battered and scarred body and all that he has absorbed and suffered on behalf of Jesus Christ. That's power. Not necessarily signs and wonders. Being able to endure it. Right. The endurance. um, You know, one of the things we learn in the two letters to the Corinthians, that one of the chief signs of an apostle is patience. Perseverance. And perseverance. Right. So that may not sound like a uh, sexy, glamorous kind of definition or expression of power. But that is power that will take you through. Um, and it's interesting that right after that sentence, we go into five and he starts addressing finally uh, the topic that we probably all would have dre- addressed in the first sentence because we thought that was the most dangerous thing going on. Mm. But he starts getting into kind of some of the fallout of that. You want to talk about a lack of power. Just read Corinthians 5, 6... Seven, you know, all the things that they're struggling with, all the carelessness with the liberty that they have been given. There's a lack of power being exercised. And this is to a church that interpreted power in terms of signs and wonders. So I I think Paul very intentionally chose that word. And in terms of what his definition was, was a lot different than, than what their definition was becoming. Yes, that's right. What do you have? No, I agree with that. And it's interesting, too, this whole letter of, the, of Corinthians, particularly the first three chapters, the way it's set up, because clearly the issue is division. They're creating uh, three denominations, four denominations, really, under the same roof, so to speak. You know, you got the Paul followers, you got the Peter followers, you got the Apollos followers, and you have those who say we're of Christ, right? They're the <laughs> They're the ones that are claiming that they're non-sectarian, but they're being sectarian by saying that. We're the ones who are of Christ. You guys aren't. But then he talks about the Greek and the Jew. And he's talking generally here now. He's just talking about the cultural mindset. But the Greeks go after wisdom, and they go after eloquence, and they go after rhetoric and sophisticated words and philosophy and sermonizing and being powerful and oratory. And then the Jew, again, cultural mindset, they go after signs and wonders. When you read the narrative of the New Testament and then you look carefully at Corinthians and you match it, Peter was known for his signs and wonders. So it was probably the Jewish believers in the church in Corinth, which were in the minority, who were just thrilled with Peter, you know. And so they were saying, where of Peter? Because of his signs and wonders, you know. I mean, healing people with his shadow. 
But then you have Apollos, who was a Jew from Alexandria, but he was powerful in his speaking. I mean, he was oratorically gifted. And, you know, if you've ever heard a great preacher, it doesn't matter what they're saying. It's how they're saying it. <laughs> That's very impressive. And so Apollos was someone who appealed to the Greek mind because of his oratory. And what's fascinating is that in chapter 2, I'll just read the beginning part. He says in verse 1, 1 Corinthians 2, 1, When I came to you, brothers, I did not come with eloquence or superior wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I came to you in weakness and fear and with much trembling. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that your faith may not rest on men's wisdom, but on God's power. Now, I don't think he's talking about signs and wonders, because that's what Peter was, was all about in his ministry, and that's what the Jewish believers in the church were focused on. And he is contrasting himself with the Greek orators, who were great orators and, and great in rhetorical skills and eloquence and so forth. And he's saying, I didn't come with that. But I did come. Now, he came preaching, so he did use words. Right. So when Paul says the kingdom of God does not consist in words, he doesn't mean there's no words to it, because the preaching of the gospel of the kingdom uses words. That's all over the New Testament. But it's not words only. It's the power behind the words. It's the energy of the Holy Spirit through the words, and the power is seen in the transformation of the life. And so my take on this is that you can have an individual preaching about the kingdom of God, teaching about the kingdom of God. But the real proof in the pudding is, is that preaching being used as an instrument to unleash the power of God, the power of the Holy Spirit, to change a person's life, to give them a revelation of Christ, to touch their heart, to lead them into repentance, to lead them toward transformation, to give them the steps to transform and the motivation to transform. That to me is the power of God. And God chose the foolishness of preaching to do that very thing. He chose the foolishness of preaching, I'm quoting Paul here, to be the medium by which God saves, delivers, transforms, changes, adjusts a person's heart and soul and life. So he's not saying the kingdom of God has nothing to do with words. I mean, the preaching of the gospel of the kingdom is words. But not words only. It's the power behind the words. Right. That's good. And I think even dipping back just a tad further and back into chapter 1, I think you're, you've got your, your confirmation right there because... He says in verse 30 of chapter 1, But by his doing you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, and righteousness, and sanctification, and redemption. Mm. So it's not enough just to be expressing great oratory, which sounds like wisdom. Mm. But there's got to be righteousness, sanctification, mm. and redemption. And that moves the whole thing past boasting about who speaks really well or who has incredible, miraculous signs and wonders following their ministry mm. to let him who boasts boast in the Lord. So there's a transformation going on there in the lives of people that breaks outside the bonds of what these folks were focused on. Yeah. 
So I think that's I think you're I think you're right on target there. So I think that word power is what we're we're kind of zeroed in on and, and saying that it may not mean what what we kind of typically default to these days in terms of when we see the word power. We kind of just think it's a synonym for signs and wonders. Yeah, it's it's very difficult to come to that conclusion if you read carefully First Corinthians one, two and three and four. All right, let's go to the next one. I'm wondering how we insurgents can grow in a vision of the kingdom that doesn't sideline children, seniors, the disabled, the traumatized or abused, the chronically sick, etc. How do we practically minister to the vulnerable, breaking out of a mindset that tends to limit the least of these to objects of charitable management? Okay, so I think there's two questions here. How can we grow in a vision of the kingdom that doesn't sideline to summarize, doesn't sideline or neglect the oppressed and the hurting and the abused. I would say that if, if you understand the magnitude of the kingdom of God, there's no way you're going to ignore the oppressed, the hurting, the abused. That's not the whole of the kingdom, but it's a part of it. Right. It's a part of the life of the kingdom, you know, the least of these. And I address that in the book Insurgents. I talk about this. The other piece of it growing in a vision I think the way to do that is to immerse ourselves in the message of the kingdom and in every form it has and then also be part of a kingdom cell because part of being a kingdom cell as I talk about in the book is plotting goodness as I call it breaking good to spin off from the hit show breaking bad from years past and that is to talk about how can we as a kingdom community whether it's two three four etc how can we manifest Christ, not just to one another, but to those outside of us, particularly the hurting and those who are poor and those who are oppressed and those who are traumatized, all the people she's talking about. So, you know, how you grow in that vision is you learn more about what the kingdom of God is through the resources that are available. And then you, you learn with other believers and you learn by doing, you learn by uh, hands-on doing as you follow the Lord together. And again, I get back to this issue of kingdom cells because I think it's indispensable. We can't live the kingdom life by ourselves as individuals. Right. You need at least one other person to begin, right? To go down this road in its fullness, at least. The other question is, how do we practically minister to these kinds of people and not let them be the objects of charitable management? And this to me gets into motivation. Am I loving this person? Am I caring for this person? Am I helping this person because of some obligation? I suppose that's what charitable management means. The object of charitable management opposed to the love of Christ compels me to be compassionate and to be sympathetic and to be empathetic, right? And so this all has to do with our relationship with the Lord. We all have to have him deal with our motivations because I don't think a motivation is something that we in our own selves can change. We can certainly become aware of our motives and then say, Lord, I don't want to have this motive. You change it. You turn the knob on this motive and you adjust it to, to what it ought to be and then allow the Lord to deal with your life. I don't really have a formula for changing your motives outside of asking God to do it and then stand back and hide. <laughs> you know what I mean? But sometimes it's painful. Often it's painful. Just the list here is so overwhelming that you can only fake so long engaging this as a heartfelt thing. It's either that 
or the Lord has to change you or share his heart with you or overwhelm you with his heart so that you now have his heart mm-hmm. towards all these. To me, that's the only way that you can even engage all of these various groups without viewing them as um, people who are perhaps absorbing the time and resources of the ecclesia or the kingdom. And that, that's a question I had about this. Is she talking about people who are outside the kingdom that we're ministering to or these people inside the ecclesia and the kingdom? Because all these people are inside as well. Mm. And so uh, that, that kind of changes it up a bit because then there are people that you're relating to on a much more regular basis rather than somebody you might be seeing every right. once in a while or maybe even only once. And if that's the case, then her second part of her question makes a lot of sense, which is how, you know, how do we break out of this mindset that tends to limit viewing these people as simply as objects of charitable management? And that's a really great insight, because when I was living in community, we did have people who were, you know, limited in their capacities in different ways. Mm -hmm. And... I remember the first time it became clear to me that the Lord had communicated like there's no second class people here. There's not poor brother so-and-so who's always in need of some kind of help. There's just all of us as members of the body. There's brother so-and-sos and there's sister so-and-sos. There's not charitable case in the body of Christ so-and-sos because when, you, when you're viewing people that way, even even the people that you think have the least amount of radar pick up on that, mm-hmm. that they are some kind of charity case. And they will not last within that ecclesia if they're always going to be those people. At some point, you have to start viewing them as co-brothers mm-hmm. and sisters in Christ, not as charity cases. Mm-hmm. And that manifests in a lot of different ways. Sometimes that, that means you're going to dry up the type of help that you're giving them. Because they're not a charity case. They're a brother or a sister who needs to perhaps take a different path than they're taking. Because sometimes people like being charity cases. They get used to it. It's their identity becomes connected to it. And I think part of being in the kingdom is having that kind of identity needs to be broken. And it doesn't break on its own necessarily. It breaks through the involvement of brothers and sisters being in their life. So breaking out of that mindset is is a miracle to be able to view everybody in almost the same fashion. I don't mean that we all have the same capacities and we're going to send some brother out to or sister out to you know go go preach the gospel somewhere when they're not that's not possible for them at mm. that point. To underscore uh, and highlight some of the things you said. You talk about perception. You talk about an awareness. I think when it comes to how we view people there is viewing people through the natural lens of our fallen nature it's something that we're i mean we're born into it's comes natural it's part of our environment it's part of our wiring but over and over again and i'm learning this more and more and i'm seeing this more and more stand out that the bible ties transformation into the renewing of the mind a shift in your perspective that's really where it all begins and you talk about how something happened where you begin to perceive you had a different perception that this was not someone who was an object of need but 
This was part of the family of God. This person was part of the family of God. There was a shift, right? The shift in heart first. Heart and mind are closely tied yes, together. Right. And the way I think about it is our feelings and our attitudes are the direct result of our thoughts. So, for example, I may have used this example in a previous podcast. I don't remember. But on the way here, I saw flashing lights. A police officer, right? Now, suppose that police officer was behind me, and I see the lights go on, and all of a sudden, what happens? I start to feel anxiety. I start to feel fear. My attitude now, maybe I was singing and happy, and now I'm sad because I have visions of getting a ticket. But then, he passes me, and he keeps driving, and all of a sudden, within seconds, my whole attitude changes, and now I'm back to singing. I'm singing even more, and I'm singing happier. <laughs> There's no fear, there's joy, praise the Lord. That happened because my perception changed within seconds, mm -hmm. right? I'm in line at the library waiting to check out a book. And I've been waiting for 30 minutes and some guy just rudely cuts in front of me, audaciously, arrogantly cuts in front of me. And all of a sudden there's this attitude of, I'm upset. I don't like this. Feel that flash. Uh, then I hear someone else come over to him, and he's blind. He can't see. What happens? Immediately, mm -hmm. my point is my perception changes and my attitude changes mm -hmm. because my mindset changed. And so I think two things here. One, the key to our attitudes, our feelings, our heart is all on our perception, our awareness, how we think. Hence, the renewal of the mind. It's a consistent theme throughout the letters of Paul. Secondly, how do we renew our minds? Well, one way, there's certain things we can do to renew our minds, but significantly, the Lord uses pain and suffering to shift our perspective, but he also uses other members of the body of Christ. And I can't tell you the monumental impact that other people have had on me by giving me a different perspective. When I was looking at something one way, well, Frank, you haven't considered this. You haven't looked at this side of it. You're not seeing the bigger picture. And right. once I catch on to that, guess what happens? My whole mindset changes. My attitude changes. My feelings change. My heart changes. So, you know, I wanted to add that because I think that's the key here. Your perception has to change, and there are things that can be done to change the perception. Right. Yeah. I remember way back in those days how it came to me was there are no charity cases in the body of Christ. Or we're all charity cases in the body yeah, of Christ. We just take that. turns being yeah, the charity take, take case. Yeah. <laughs> um, that's, that's accurate, by the way. Yeah, it is accurate because I have, I have taken my turn, you know, and thank God that the body of Christ was there to um, help me out when that when it was my turn well this probably is a good place for me to say something nick here and i'll just say it in front of our listening audience of three but uh you know ever since i've known you you have been a charity case in my life and i just want to ask you to please can it end can we stop it it cannot end <laughs> until you change your perception of me oh touche my friend but it does right i mean there's a brother or a sister sitting there across from me in the room who also has Jesus Christ dwelling in them. They're not a charity case anymore. 
they may be in certain areas, they may still need some assistance, but they ought to be increasingly becoming less and less of a permanent charity case. Yes. If the kingdom is moving forward among us and it's active and it's vibrant and it's healthy, quote unquote charity cases are going to disappear. And sometimes, Frank, people remain charity cases because we are too uncomfortable to make them anything but that. We think it's mean. We think it's 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 awkward. We, we mm. feel uncomfortable taking a stronger stand. And this is where the power, again, of community life comes in, is that you where you may be too weak as an individual to lift that person up and out of their charity status. Mm. Together, the body can adjust a view or a mindset towards brothers and sisters. So we, we always had made a decision we weren't going to have any charity cases in the church. We just had brothers and sisters, and mm. that helped a great deal. All right, the next question Christians are bombarded with constant messages on social media, podcasts, and sermons at church. How do we obey the gospel of the kingdom and begin living it out as opposed to just hearing it and casually or mentally agreeing with it, but treating it like any other religious topic? Frank, I'm going to hit that ball over the net into your court. Well, I'm not going to swing, Nick. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, you have to. That's how that game works. Oh! (laughs) I like this question in a way because, you know, as an author, it, it speaks to a part of me that's an ongoing frustration, I guess. And that is that if you have a message to share and your goal is not to just have people you know nod their heads and say amen and wasn't that wonderful but to actually embrace the message to the point where they're embodying it and it's bearing fruit in their life and it's affecting real change you're constantly faced with the fact that there are an endless number of books available and new ones are constantly coming out on every topic under the sun and constantly i read recently there are now 32 million books on amazon 32 million altogether and then podcasts are well somewhere between 500,000 and a million or probably more those were statistics that were a while back and it's easy to get lost in the constant deluge of information especially in the day in which we live and I didn't even mention YouTube videos and I didn't mention social media and these are things that this person mentioned so here's what I would say to the question how do we obey the gospel of the kingdom and begin living it out versus just hearing it and casually mentally agreeing with it treating it like any other religious topic the way we treat religious topics is yep I read the book. Yep, I heard the message. Yep, I went through the course. Yep, I heard the podcast. Now let's go on to the next thing, right? That's the typical default switch that many of us are set to. Nick, I haven't left the Gospel of the King. Every book that I write going forward, and even when I wrote Regrace last year, there's a tie-in to the Gospel of the Kingdom. You see it in the opening parts of it. It's a part of it. Every message I will share, every book that God's merciful that I will write from the future is going to tie into the gospel of the kingdom somehow. 
You know, I'm not leaving it. So the first answer to the question from my perspective is you don't leave it. You don't just, okay, I heard it. Let's move on to the next thing. You stay with it until it permeates every part of your body, until Christ permeates every part of your being. And now the journey of your whole life is surrendering your life to the king and experiencing his kingdom. The other part is, and I would ask this person this question because they're asking this, right? If you read Insurgents, which I assume you did, did you go through all of the taking action sections and apply them to your life and practically implement them? Because that's why I put those in there. Because I knew that the typical book, even books I've written, a person reads them, they check the box off, and then they go to the next book by the next author, right? I wanted to stop the reader dead in his or her tracks and say, stop right now. You just read this section. Now let's put shoe leather on it. Let's land the airplane. Let's put it into practice. And I give specific questions and specific exercises to do. So I would, I would ask this person, have you done that? And if not, go back and do that. And if you don't leave the message and you continue to deepen in it, and there's a lot of resources that are out there and we continue to put out, including this podcast, that are designed to move us deeper into that gospel, that message and the living out of the kingdom of God, and then take seriously those take action sections. And then have you been intentional about putting together a kingdom cell? If not, why? You know, that would be my next question. I think a lot of people who are actually struggling with this may not even know that they're struggling with this because I think we have almost unconsciously become simply Christian message consumers. Oh, amen. And that the whole, in many instances, our Christian life has simply become message consumption. And, I mean, you can see why that happens. I mean, most traditional church structures set up that way. I mean, that's what you're basically required to do. But this is even outside of institutional Christianity. This is this is a, a proliferating problem. So I also uh, like this question a lot. I think it's um, insightful, and I think that step one is recognizing that <laughs> that there's a problem, which is what this question does which is saying, wow, I'm listening, and then I find myself, or reading, or however it is that you're acquiring the messages that you're acquiring, and then you simply move on to the next message. And it's almost like a Greek problem in the first century, where it's just tickle my ears with something new. I want to hear something new, but it actually has no outward bearing on your day-to-day existence. And if there's one one fingerprint or one sign that you're in the gospel of of the kingdom and you're living living in a kingdom is it's going to turn your actual physical life upside down mm-hmm. just look Amen. at what happened to all these people that we read about yes. in the new testament i mean i think sometimes we we because we're so familiar with their stories we become kind of numb to the degree of upheaval that they experienced because they answered the call to the gospel of the kingdom. Mm. And, you know, the action items in Insurgents are an attempt, I think, to fight that and to kind of funnel the reader 
toward taking action because the gospel of the kingdom, <laughs> it looks like something. It looks like a lot of different things, but it looks like something. It's not just a message. It's a message that leads to your life being flipped on its head. Mm-hmm. And I can tell you, uh, and I'm not going to do it on, on right now, but my life was flipped on its head again several years ago because of the gospel of the kingdom. And those flips that come are, man, they are above and beyond what you are able to do on your own. And yet you're doing them anyway. And I think one of the things that we're dealing with when we're addressing a problem like this, this uh, listener has asked about is that I think sometimes the Lord does bring these things in front of us and we absolutely are dismissive of them because sometimes they're outrageous. But the gospel of the kingdom intrinsically has outrageous things awaiting you in your life. Unexpected things. Um, You know, predictability is gone out the window in the kingdom. somebody say predictability and faith cannot coexist and in the gospel of the kingdom you're going to have to let go of something like predictability and we like that kind of stuff a lot and and so some of the actions i mean those those are the steps to start with because they're in the book and i would go back to those i would be having an ongoing dialogue with the lord about Lord, what, what does living in your kingdom look like for me today? Mm-hmm. And it's not necessarily that you'll get some kind of out-of-the-blue answer. I suppose that could happen. But your life is already arranged by the Lord to accommodate the gospel of the kingdom. And where it's not, those are the areas that you're called to, to break free and break mm-hmm. loose from. And only you can identify. I cannot identify right. those for you. Frank cannot identify right. those for Amen. you. I can't identify those for Frank, Mm. but we know, you know, we know the things that we need to break free from, and we know the the areas most of the time, deep down in our heart, we know the paths that we need to start walking down. And um, I think that, that it does require having one of those kind of heart to hearts. It's, it's, it's coming back to Romans 12, one and two of Lord, I'm putting myself on the altar, mm. whatever it is, and then you're waiting for some voice from on high, but in reality, that voice has already been speaking to you from within and That's giving right. you impressions yeah. from within, and you probably already yeah. know what you're supposed to be doing and what direction you're supposed to be yeah. taking. And, yeah. I, and I, again, just to underscore something Frank said earlier, I'm making it sound the way I'm talking right now like it's completely individual and it's you and the Lord and that's the kingdom. But this is happening, hopefully, with even just a couple of other people mm. is absolutely better than nothing. Yes. Um, and, and so, you know, finding a couple of folks or a half a dozen folks that, um, you know, are hungry for this type of an existence and, and coming to terms with the fact that your life is always going to just be a hair beyond your ability to actually pull off on your own. That's to me, if I could shrink it down to what does it mean to be living in the kingdom mm. is always just outside my capacity. I'm always just needing the Lord to do mercy. what I need to mm. do. 
I need his life. Amen. I need his strength. I need his power. I need mm-hmm. his mercy. I need his grace. I need his endurance. And I need him to live the life that's been set out for me for today. Amen. That's and, right. and I'm not going to get into the personal details of my life. Frank and many others are familiar with him. They are outside of my capacities. And yet, right. when I go to sleep at the end of the day, most days, somehow, mm. it's been lived out anyway. And so there's that, there is that element of jumping off the cliff without the parachute being in the backpack when you jump. And somehow it finds its way onto mm. your back on the way down because that's what the Lord does. Mm. And, and I know that that may not be a nice, clear, concise definition of the kingdom and of moving out of just being a, a, a message consumer. But it does involve action, always. The kingdom always involves action. Yeah, absolutely. Every aspect of the gospel of the kingdom, every layer of it, every stage of it is that which requires a response. And no response, or I'll just move on to the next thing because I read this book or I heard this podcast or or message or whatever. No response is still a response. And I do think that in our culture... We have been conditioned to think that if we hear a message or we read a message, that equates, that equals, that we've experienced it. We have it. We've gotten it, right? And this is where I've talked about the drip-drip effect. I know this in my own life. I cannot read a book once. If it's something that calls me to action and if it's something that is really weighty, I don't mean an academic work. I'm talking about something that has deep spiritual content. There is no way that I'm gonna get it once. I may, I may get it intellectually once, but in order for that thing to penetrate me, it's the drip drip. So there are books that I read constantly. There are articles that I have printed out in a packet that I have been going through for months and just reading them over and over and over again, brother, to get them inside me because I know that just reading something once or even twice doesn't mean it's permeated into my being in my soul it doesn't mean it's renewed my mind and so again i come back to don't leave it don't move on to the next thing stay with it deepen it take action respond and lean on the lord's mercy as you've so eloquently described but i think we'll end it there we have more questions that we'll address in our next episode we will see you next time If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the Insurgents Podcast and give it a five-star review on iTunes. This will help others find it. Also, you can join Frank's unfiltered email list at frankviola.org and receive encouragement, challenges, and insights connected to the gospel of the kingdom. Remember, the Insurgents has begun. Don't miss it.